Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I want to begin by pointing out how remarkable it is the degree of influence that the future has on the present. And the reason I say it's remarkable is because of this. The future, for all our intents and purposes, is something that does not yet exist. But if you think about it, decisions are made every day in light of a non-existent future. Stocks are bought or sold with an expectation of something that doesn't exist yet, of what those stocks will do in a future time. Your current state of mind even rests either comfortably or uncomfortably on your perception of what will happen tomorrow. But tomorrow, you understand, is nothing right now. doesn't exist. The ancient orator, Cicero, illustrated the power of this non-existent future in our lives by the story of Damocles. Damocles was a courtier. He was an Italian courtier, and he was granted by the king he courted to sit upon the king's throne, to be, in effect, the king of this ancient kingdom. But there was only one stipulation, and that was that a dagger would be hung point down, suspended on nothing but a slender strand of a horse's tail hair above Damocles' head as he sat upon his throne. So the entire kingdom, all the riches, everything, with the stipulation of instant death any moment. And Damocles, as you might do, gave up the crown. Because all these blessings in the present are not worth holding on to if it means they're held on to with an uncertainty about the next minute, about the future. So because of his perception or thought of the future, he gives up an entire kingdom. There are other forces in the world with the power to dethrone monarchs like love or loyalty, but what surprises us here again about the future is that it doesn't exist. So if you have a young man and he empties his entire bank account because of his love for this young lady, well, we might question his wisdom, but at least the young lady exists. But when you have people who empty their bank accounts in preparation for some imagined apocalypse that they believe are coming. If you remember, 2000 is coming. It's the end of the world. And people empty their bank account. The strange thing about that is when you were in 1999, 2000 did not exist. The future is nothing. And yet it has this immense power over people. It's like Spurgeon once observed, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it does empty today of its strength. So that is kind of the bad side of future-facing thoughts. But I don't want to stay there because we're more concerned right now with, in this lesson, the good side of future-facing thoughts. Just like a woman may be entirely depleted by her thought of a non-existent future, she may also be incredibly encouraged by her thought of a non-existent future. So think of it. In your own tendencies, in your own life. So here's an example. What is something you really enjoy? Maybe a vacation to Florida. 
or just a weekend or something else. You just imagine it. You know what it is. And as that's approaching, in the future, it's nothing yet, but a vacation in Florida is approaching, what happens to your mood today? It improves. Nothing's doing that, you understand. There's no vacation in Florida. It might not happen for all you know, but you think it will, and therefore that thought now encourages you powerfully, mightily. So you may be burdened by the care of your responsibilities, the monotony of your schedule, and when the weekend approaches, or when that happy event is one week, one day away, your mood improves. I know people who their mood noticeably improves when we start talking about dinner. The thought of it coming is a happy thought, and maybe that's you as well. And in fact... The thought, just the thought of future happiness can lift those last, even if they're miserable days beforehand, into the lower parts of heaven. You know this from your own experience. Think of a contractor out working on a roof and he is baking on those black shingles. But if it's Friday and Saturday he goes to Florida, then when his equipment slides off the roof, he can laugh. Oh, it would slid off the roof. He wouldn't do that on a Monday. You see, it's a Friday, and the thought of what's happening the next day, just the mere thought. He's not in Florida, but it's the thought of what's happening. Now, the Bible has a precise term for that thought, and that term is called hope. It's easy to assume, because assuming is always easy, that hope is something that has entirely to do with the future. It's something you just throw into a non-existent future, and someday you'll arrive at it. But that's not hope at all. Hope is looking forward, but hope stands right here, right where you are. It's that thought of what's looking forward, and that enlivens and brings an energy that very few other things can do, or can match it. If we then, as we do, desire to find in Christ all that we need, a sufficiency in Him, we have to understand that a large part of our enjoyment of Christ in this world comes through hope in Christ. A thought about the future, a present thought involving Christ, and that is namely that we will be with Christ. We drink Christ in, in large part, through the cup of hope. So the kind of day-by-day blase parchedness that we may experience in our lives in the work week a lot of that is due to the fact that we're not having this hopeful thought or anticipation of Christ in the future. Someone can object to this, as critics would, and say, well, yes, pie in the sky, by and by. You Christians are so heavenly-minded, you know, earthly good, be distracted, think of heaven. But someone who makes that kind of an objection entirely misunderstands the nature of hope. Hope is a present force, and it is more powerful than almost, I won't say any, There's another, but almost any other force that motivates mankind. The ancient, the early Christian church began under the auspices of the Roman Empire. And this was a lesson that the Roman Empire learned in those first centuries, which is that you can distract men and women by bread and circuses, but with hope you can turn the world upside down. And that's what the church taught to Rome. And that's what we want to learn this morning. Hope in Christ. So, then, 
What specifically does it mean to drink this cup of hope? Now, before I give an answer, I want to turn us to the text that's going to be the central text of this passage. You're welcome to turn to it. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's specifically verse 8. And Peter is writing to a group of people who are drinking the cup of hope. They don't have a lot else going for them. They probably are suffering persecution. But they're drinking this cup of hope. And in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what Peter writes. Though you do not now see him, and that's Christ. You don't see Christ You believe in him, so there's faith, and my argument is that hope is nothing more than faith looking forward. You understand that? When you hope for something, it's faith, belief that something will happen in the future. So, you believe in him, you have faith, or we could say hope, you'll see that in a second, that you believe in him and that this is the consequence that we want to see in our lives and rejoice with a moderate amount of joy. It's not. You rejoice with this kind of a joy, okay? And you're not seeing, you get this, you're not seeing Christ and the hope you're expressing toward him, it's a non-existent future right now, but it's the thought of Christ one day that causes now you to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and you expect him to stop talking because you can't express it, but he tries to express it and we're trying to. Inexpressible and, John Flavel pointed that out, inexpressible and full of glory. Do you want that kind of joy? If I'm selling that for $100, would you buy that? And that is what we're offered here not seeing Christ, but hoping in Him and a joy that's in it. You can't even express this joy. Now, the comfort of that is that whatever I say about this hope in Christ this morning, and of course I'm going to speak in superlative terms, it's going to seem like I'm exaggerating. This is such an amazing thing, like I'm a snake oil salesman selling you something fantastic so I can keep my job as a pastor. But I promise you that's not what I'm doing Because according to this passage, whatever I tell you of this joy that comes from hope in Christ is less than what could be told because it's inexpressible and it's full of glory. It's a fantastic joy. And you might say, and you would rightly say, let's say they believe in him. Doesn't that have something more than just like believing in his return with a kind kind of a current love for him? You know, they don't see him, but he's here with them presently. And they have a love for him. You're right. Next week, we are going to talk about love for Christ. And in one sense, this hope for Christ, your desire to be with him and expectation of that is just a kind of extension of love for Christ. But I think the focus here, a lot of it is hope in Christ. And this is why I say that. Because if you're looking at this passage, both before and after, the emphasis of Peter is on Christ's future coming. So you see that just before Peter had been saying his readers suffering, if necessary, you've been grieved by all these trials. Why? To refine your faith. Why? So that it might result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Non-existent right now, but a future point when Christ is revealed. That's the focus right before. 
And, he, and Peter says, in this, you rejoice. That's your joy. Future coming of Christ. And then just after our text, in fact, our, our verse kind of goes on, though I stopped it at 8, but in 9, they receive as the outcome of their faith the salvation of their souls. And this salvation in this passage is a future salvation. It's something there that was prophesied long ago, but it's referring to this future coming of Christ, this revelation. It's a grace, he says in verse 13, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's focus is forward. In fact, I wasn't going to teach a class on hope in Christ right now. I was going to teach on love for Christ, but passage after passage of the New Testament that spoke of the joy we have from loving Christ kept pushing me toward hope in the future coming of Christ. And therefore, this kind of interjects as it does. But they are believing in Jesus in his return, looking forward. Therefore, that's faith looking forward. That's hope. And this hope is producing this joy. That's the subject of this lesson today. It is the powerful hope, joy, sorry, that happens when you hope in Jesus. So let's begin with our discussion of that joy. Now, if you want to know the strength of any hope whatsoever, what do you do? You set it on fire. That is Peter's point in 1 Peter 1, and this is the reason that you do that. Because you will never know the strength of a bodybuilder if you only observe the bodybuilder lifting pillows. Is that true? Because I can lift pillows and I'm no bodybuilder. You will not know how strong the bodybuilder is until you give him a weight that pushes him to the extremity of his ability. Same with a warrior. You don't know how strong a warrior is when he's in the barracks, but when he's in the battle, then you find out his quality. And that's true here of a hope. You don't know how strong a hope is or how much it influences you until you light it on fire until you test it to the tearing of its muscle. And since hope produces joy, that thought produces joy in the one who's hoping, then what you have to do to see how much joy it's producing is to set all your hopes on fire. And this is the reason because you do not know how much of your current happiness comes from hope in Christ And how much of it comes from hope in ordinary, good, normal, human happinesses and hopes? You don't know. I could really be convinced right now that much of my happiness comes from the fact that I am hoping one day to be with Christ. And that is compelling me in my life. But you know what? It might be that that's maybe 10% of my joy. And that 90% of my joy comes from other common human happinesses. You live in a country that allows you freedoms. You have comforts. You have expectations that you'll go home and you'll have a meal or you'll go out to eat. You have expectations that your children will grow up fine and healthy and normal. All of these things produce a certain happiness now because you're expecting them. So how will you know among all these hopes producing this kind of gusher of joy in your life, How do you know how much hope in Christ is producing? Well, you know when those other hopes burn up. And then you ask, 
how much joy do I have left? I will give you a personal example. This is something we call, I'll call for our purposes, the death of dreams. And it's very necessary and important part of the Christian life. To give you a personal example, as a pastor, there are certain joys and certain sorrows I experience that attend the work that I do. You, in whatever vocation you are in, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're working somewhere, you have certain joys and sorrows too, so you can relate this to yourself. But as a pastor, one of the joys that I experience is a certain degree of honor. And some of that comes because I'm here in front of you all, I'm saying things, and you just assume I know what I'm talking about, and I hope that I do. But there's a certain degree of honor that comes with being a pastor. Now, this isn't all wrong. In fact, we read, I think it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. So very well. So some of the happiness I experience as a pastor, some of it, comes from this expectation that as I go about my work, I will receive honor. You'll like me. You'll approve of what I'm doing. Some of my happiness comes from that. So in my heart, that's where some of my joy is coming from. But the question for me is, if that's having an influence on my daily joy, how will I ever know if I'm really hoping in Christ and experiencing this inexpressible joy that comes from that hope rather than this hope? Maybe I have such little hope in Christ, but I have such great hope in honor that I look really joyful. But it's a falsely founded joy. In this kind of a circumstance, being led by a good shepherd, a kindly God and creator who is overseeing our souls, he in kindness will cast fire on other dreams to allow a testing to see if other ones burn up so that we realize how much of our hope is actually in Christ. That is the death of dreams. I'm reminded of a profound chorus I heard actually in a Reliant K song that well expressed this attitude in God, and it was this. You said, I know that this will hurt, but if I don't break your heart, things will just get worse. If the burden seems too much to bear, remember, the end will justify the pain it took to get us there. That is the way that God sometimes views our life. He brings pain and suffering because the end of having a purified and clarified hope in Christ will justify the present pain. So for me, if I enjoy honor, while I am grateful to God when I experience that, more necessary to the benefit of my soul is dishonor. It is important for me that my failures at times be made public. It's important that people not always like me because that's a testing. It helps me. If Christ never let me be humiliated, if he never stripped me of honor, how would I ever know the state of my heart? So if you see Christ tying together the tails of foxes like Samson and putting a torch of fire between them and sending them running through your fields of other hopes, don't be alarmed. This is the normal Christian life and an evidence of God's love and care and discipline of you for your good. Whatever your other hopes, it's necessary. God means as much good as the doctor who cuts your skin to remove cancer. The fire, the trial must come to clear away other hopes, to show you if you have a true and authentic hope in Christ that will survive the firestorm.
Coming to my mind is this other song, now by Beautiful Eulogy. It's this line. They say, what's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. So, the death of dreams is not an end in itself. God is not sadistic. He never delights in any of the sorrows you experience, and you must never think of him as doing so. It's the end that justifies it. And this is the end. This is the purpose. There is something concealed in your heart when you have that when you lose is finally revealed. And that's God's intention. Think about the children of Israel. As they wander through the wilderness, you remember that God fed them day after day with manna. It was a kind of flaky bread. Seems from its description that it tasted okay. But it was not meat. And the Israelites had cravings after meat. And God would not, except on one occasion, and a lot of people died. It was not good. God would not give them meat. Why would God rip away, burn away their hope in delightful foods and just keep, for 40 years, giving them the same thing day after day? He explains it. Moses tells them at the end of their journey, God did this that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Meaning, were you just in it for the water that flowed from the rock, from the meat with all the quail? Is that what you're in this for? Or can you continue on day, year 32 to trek along? Can you continue you're the younger generation, with a hope in the rock itself, the spiritual rock, which is Christ, with a trust in God. Is that what keeps you going, or is it the expectation of food? So God gives them manna to test them. Think back even here in our text, Peter's readers here before. He says, just before, in this you rejoice. This is verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And a trial is just another way of saying the death of a dream. Something you hoped for, killed. You've been grieved, and he says, it's if necessary. And you say, why is the death of a dream ever necessary? He explains, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, future-facing faith is hope, The tested genuineness of your hope, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your, the death of your dreams is often a necessary and a good thing. Now, I realize you may be experiencing the death of dreams, the death of hopes right now. And I don't know what those are specifically. Hopes for yourself, hopes for your family, for your spouse, for your country, and they just disintegrate in your hands. And they go away. A blaze consumes one expectation after another, driven by some favorable wind from God. It's almost surprising sometimes, the kind of domino effect of hopes being destroyed. Like, it seems like God's behind this. You can either become bitter at God or by faith you can believe that this is for your good. 
You might be sitting now somewhat like Job, alone, scratching your boils with a pot shirt. God's providence is, in your life then, frowning in an inexpressibly ugly manner. Death of a loved one, that could be the death of a dream you're experiencing because when you lose a loved one, you lose all the hopes and all the expectations in this life of time spent together, of meals shared, heart to heart, friendship. You lose all of that when a loved one dies. That is a death of many dreams. But you might feel like life is somewhat gray, so that happens, somewhat meaningless. But in one sense, that's precisely what God wants you to feel at this point. It's as if you've been at the gym lifting a barbell, but you've been doing it using a bunch of your muscles. You've been bending your knees and you've been tossing your back to bring it up. I realize Arnold did it that way, but if you're bringing it up with all these different muscles, you don't know how strong your biceps really are, but once you get proper form, you eliminate the other hopes, the other muscles, and you're only using, you've isolated this one muscle group, then suddenly it burns a lot more than it did before. You're doing the same thing, you see? You're still with joy, but it's burning, and it's a lot harder than it was before. But what's going to happen now? Now, this hope is going to grow. That's the purpose of the death of dream, when your other supports go, and now you are in a position divinely placed for your hope in Christ and that inexpressible joy that comes from that hope to grow and to develop. So that's the death of dreams. I've already observed that hope is a present force, you remember. It's a thought right now that brings light and energy. I've also made the comment that hope doesn't just bring a little light and energy, but rather an immense amount of light and energy, one of the greatest motivators in mankind. And now we come to the point where we ask, if that is the nature of hope, one of the most powerful forces in this world, then what happens when we come not just to any hope, as the others burn away, but we come to the one hope which on the testimony of God himself is the greatest and most powerful of any hopes. The consequence of that hope is something we would describe as inexpressible and full of glory. The death of other dreams We observe that. It's important in the Christian life. But it is only important because when your other dreams die, they die for this dream, this one dream, this one hope, which is a hope in Christ. The best display of the joy that comes from this one hope in Christ is seen by this example. It's seen in the face of the martyr. Physical death is the death of nearly all other hopes. So when you go about your life like you are, one day you may lose one hope. One day you'll lose another hope. This dream will die. This dream will die. And you'll move on and you'll have other dreams and you'll have other hopes. But when you are facing death, then all of the hopes and dreams you have in this life are gone. Like that. Poof. They're all gone. Because the man who's about to die, such as a martyr's death, He doesn't have this expectation anymore that he's going to spend many long years and a good life sitting around the table with all of his grandchildren. That hope is a good hope, and that hope goes away for the martyr. He doesn't expect 
that he's going to preach great sermons. He doesn't expect he's going to raise his family in a fantastic manner. He doesn't expect to see his daughter walk down the aisle. All those hopes and expectations go away. He's a martyr. Physical death takes those all away. And when all these hopes burn up, and literally the only thing that's left is one hope, and it's a hope in Christ, what kind of a joy can that produce? And the answer of our text is that hope all by itself, that hope in Christ and no more, can produce a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. That joy, that hope, unsupported by any other natural hopes, by itself, a joy inexpressible and full of glory. So you see Stephen, that first martyr, and he's gazing into heaven. They're throwing rocks to kill him. He's going to die. He doesn't have an expectation of other things, all his friendships, whatever. They're out of view right now. But what is Stephen seeing as the rocks are flying toward him? He gazes into heaven. He is permitted by God, kindly, a vision of Christ at the right hand of the throne. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's just another way of saying what Paul said in Philippians. To depart and be with Christ is far better. I would rather do that. If I need to do it with the rocks, so be it. All the other hopes are burnt away. All the other hopes die. And Stephen, in the martyr's face, what is there? There is a joy. Receive my spirit. Finally, I'm free. I get to be with Christ, and that's far better. That's a hope in Christ all by itself. That's all Stephen had, and it's enough to give him quite a noble ending. Or you turn your eyes, just shortly thereafter, to the Colosseum of Rome, which was a sort of portal to heaven for the early church. Many martyrs died there. And if you listen closely, the first, early there, in the, I think the first century, maybe this early second, you hear a voice calling out in that Colosseum with its crowd, Reproach Christ, it's the Roman proconsul, and I will set you free. Because there in the middle of the big crowd is an 86-year-old man, Polycarp, perhaps a disciple of John, and the proconsul threatens him with wild beasts, will destroy you, will kill you with wild beasts. All your other hopes gone. And the old man replies, it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. That's about what was to happen to him. Destroyed by beasts, and he was going to turn from the evil of this world, the remaining corruption, to the righteousness of heaven. That's the only hope he had, and it was enough for him. Or you look again, here's a 22-year-old young woman, similar time frame, Perpetua, with a newborn son. And her father had come to her while she was imprisoned, said, daughter, have pity on my gray head. That hope, that expectation that you can be here for me. Think of your brothers, there's a hope. Think of your mother, a hope, and your aunt, a hope. Think of your child, a hope. And while she and her companions thereafter are on trial before the Roman governor who's going to determine her fate, her father comes out before them all with the infant son in his arms and begs her again to reconsider offering all the other hopes of this world if she will stay. The Roman governor says, have pity on your father. And she refuses. She says, I'm a Christian. I can't be anything else. Then 
She writes this in her journal right afterward. Then Hilarionis, the governor, passed sentence on all of us, her and her companions. We were condemned to the beasts, and notice, and we returned to prison in high spirits. That's the only hope she had, and it produced high spirits in her. The joy in that aged Polycarp or in the young Perpetua, in Stephen, you see that that all by itself is enough of a joy to propel the entire motivational center of an individual, not just for them back then, but for us presently. If you think of Polycarp, maybe before he was a martyr, let's say age 85, he still had this martyr's hope. It was in there. It was concealed in the having of life. It was just revealed in the losing of his life. But it wasn't just that you have to die as a martyr to have this kind of a joy. You have this now when the other hopes burn away and you have a hope in Christ presently. Perpetua, age 21. Imagine if her hope and desire, what she wanted out of life, was a calm existence, a nice romantic relationship with her husband, and to raise this child. If those supported the happiness of Perpetua, she would weep at the thought of a death sentence in misery, and she would recant Christ. But those were not the hopes producing joy in her. It was a hope in Christ. If Polycarp just wanted to see his grandchildren grow up, then he would have recanted Christ. But that was not the hope that was supporting his inexpressible joy. It was a hope in Christ. Hope in Christ produces a joy that cannot die even when you must die. It becomes an immortal kind of joy. The death of your dreams is not the death of all your dreams. One dream survives the fire. In fact, the death of all your other dreams is intended merely for the growth and dominance of one dream, and that is a dream of being with Christ. Whether that means Him coming, oh, and that dream cries out within you, come then, Lord Jesus, quickly. Or if that's your going to Him, then you say, bring out the lion. Let me die and be with Christ. That is far better. That is the hope that produces an unbreakable, an inexpressible joy that is glorious. It's that hope. Now, we have seen this hope in Christ, but I haven't made particularly clear what it actually means to hope in Christ. So with the few minutes we have left, I want to present to you with some imagination, but not a lot, what it means to hope in Christ. What are we actually, presently, wanting to see happen that's producing this present joy? So let's say, let's just say that today, June whatever it is, today is the last day that you will experience in this world. Okay, you you die in your sleep tonight, you're welcome. You're going to die in your sleep tonight, okay, and you come tomorrow, if we can call it that, to consciousness, if we can call it that, you come to consciousness and the first thing that you realize is that you don't feel any sense of discomfort 
And it's a strange feeling because you've lived this life with a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain, your lower back, wherever, and you just get used to it. And for the very first time, it's gone. It's a strange and a rather delightful feeling, but that's what you're experiencing. And you realize that these low-grade pains or the great pains, whatever, you realize that they're not just gone, but they can only ever be memories. That sorrow and pain, beginning now and proceeding forever, will never touch you again, ever. Another relief is present. Search yourself and you feel no fear. That kind of slight tension in your gut that's always been there, gone. For the first time in your adult life, you have a mind that's void of anxiety. And it's more than just void of anxiety. You literally cannot fear or fret or be anxious. You can try, you can't. You realize you've tasted your last sorrow ever. The bitter herb of suffering. It's gone. You're not going to lose anyone here. You're not going to feel pain here. The thought of pains and problems banished forever, that mere thought, is a bit overwhelming. And it seems a little bit too good to be true. But there's no pessimism either. And you realize it's not too good to be true. This simply is true. This is the new normal for you. And it's then that you see him. Of course, you believed in him much of your life. But it's just, there's just something different about seeing him. And you search your soul, you find not a doubt left, you realize you're never going to doubt again. Because that first thing you notice about him is that he's smiling. And he's not just smiling, okay? He's smiling at you. And you remember day after day when you wondered, is God pleased with me? Is Christ, am I living my life the way Christ wants me to live? How can I know? What does he want me to do? And you failed and you felt displeasure and you were grieved by that. It hurt you more than anything else. And now you're there and all of that is gone. It's history and there he is and he's just smiling at you. And maybe for a time you just stare into his eyes and he stares into yours and you just stand there. You just be. You're there. You're with Christ. And you realize that all of the pains and every sermon you sat under here at Faith Bible Church and your family and all the difficult times and all the good times and all of the blessings and the times you spent richly or poorly in the word and your many prayers and the difficulties you experienced and the approach of death and all of that, you realize it was just leading up to this moment and this is the culmination of everything. All those philosophies of the world, the world religion, the masses in South Asia worshiping their gods, all of that that you heard about or experienced, the people around you, them turning to the world, people that you loved, or your neighbors who could not see, all of that, you realize that that was just kind of a setting, that was a background, and that's gone now, and here you are, and there he is, and you're with him. This is the beatific vision. Doubt is gone, sorrow is gone. This is what you were created for. And you kind of lived your life as a preface, and now you're here. This is what you were made to experience. And on earth, you occupied so small a place. You felt like just a grain on the seashore there of sand. And that's what you are, and that's what you'll always be. But it doesn't matter, because here's God, and you're staring into the face of God somehow. And he's giving attention undivided to you somehow. And all that you feel, no more fear, but you feel this most kind of delighted wonder, this freest sense of comfort, 
and this gentle warmth of his love, this is the beatific vision. But the thing that drives it to your soul is as you stand there, it hits you. This is just the first 15 seconds of forever. And if you have some sort of intermediate body before the resurrection, maybe tears well in your eyes, not sorrow, and you think this, this can't be, this can't be real. But this is real. This is real. Everything was leading up to this, and it's finally blossomed in, into this. And you are experiencing the ultimate end of human life, and it is only the beginning of human life. C.S. Lewis, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, captured something of this idea. And I want to end this message on the hope of Christ, hope in Christ, with a paragraph that he wrote. The children in the Chronicles of Narnia are suddenly killed in a train wreck. And there they are with Aslan, who represents Christ. And they're in Aslan's country. Lewis concludes his book, I conclude this lesson with his description of that scene. He says, and as Aslan, or Christ here, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is what we hope for when we hope in Christ. And that is why we can be satisfied if we have a hope in Christ and no more. Let's pray together. Christ, we've considered your word and, and we leave it now to you for it is in your hands to impress your word upon us, to put it into the hearts of your people so that it is not some passing fad, but it is a firm conviction that we hold whether we are in the Colosseum one day before the beasts or we die in some peaceful way in our sleep, whatever the manner, Father, I pray that what is concealed in the having of things would be a hope in Christ and if necessary, it would be revealed in the losing of things that we lack that so that that muscle may grow. So I pray you'd guide us by your wisdom as your people here at Faith Bible Church. We long to be a church that craves Christ above all other hopes. Please reveal to us what other things, good or bad, we have put our hope and expectation in. Burn away what is necessary. Leave what you desire. And I pray the outcome would be that we would be a particular and a peculiar people in this world, in this community, who can give things up with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory that we may obtain as the outcome of our hope the salvation of our souls. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.